Our sermon this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, the 24th chapter, verses 36 through 43. This is on page 1132 in the Pew Bibles. Luke 24, verse 36 through 43. Let us hear the reading of God's holy word. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me. And see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. This is God's holy word. Let's go to him now and ask his blessing upon us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is powerful. We pray that you would use your word now as you accompany it by your spirit, that you would make it penetrate deep into our hearts, that it would there find fertile soil, that it would grow into a great harvest in our lives. We ask that you would do this now, that you would sweep away all distractions and focus us in intently on the extraordinary things that you have done for us in Christ our Lord. For we ask it in his name. Amen. It has been a most extraordinary day for the disciples. Uh, Our consideration of this one day, Resurrection Day, began weeks ago at Jesus' tomb. If you recall there, uh, Mary Magdalene and other women went, and what did they find but a stone rolled away? Uh, No body in the tomb, and angels there telling them uh, that he had risen, just as he said. And that news was uh, very quickly express-rushed to the other apostles who were doubtful when they heard it. But Peter got up quickly and ran to the tomb to see for himself. Uh, We know from John's gospel that John also ran back to see as well, though Peter uh, beat him there. They looked in and they saw it was just as the women said. Other people saw Jesus as well. Mary Magdalene saw him First she thought he was the gardener, but then her eyes were opened to see him there at the empty tomb. We know from Luke's gospel that Cleopas and his companion met Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and their eyes were then opened uh, in the breaking of bread. We know that they also hurried back to Jerusalem after Jesus disappeared from their sight. They ran back that seven-mile journey of joy Uh, They came to where the other disciples were to report it, but they find that they already knew. They burst in the door, and they are told, The Lord is risen indeed. Uh, He has appeared to Simon. 
And so all of these testimonies converge as they share their experiences. Various stories uh, from various sources, from various places, uh, at various times. It's been quite a day for the disciples, for Jesus as well. A pattern is beginning to emerge here uh, that we are seeing. Each eyewitness is at first bewildered when they behold Jesus. Then they are rebuked for their unbelief. Then they are instructed in the things of the gospel so that they understand. And then they proceed to go forth and share that good news with others. It's the basic pattern we see here replicated over and over again. Uh, So that now they come together and they're confessing, Jesus Christ the Lord is risen indeed. And yet, there remains an obstacle to their faith, to the strength of their faith. Do they really understand the ramifications of their confession? The Lord is risen indeed. We have seen him. What? Have they seen? Uh, What have they gained by Jesus being risen from the dead? What does it mean that he is risen? This is a passage that confronts that obstacle uh, to their faith. We're going to consider it today. We begin with Jesus' first word to them when he appears in that room. Peace to you. Peace to you. This is where our passage begins, into this room of commotion and celebration uh, where hopes have been restored. Jesus suddenly appears in the flesh. As they were talking about these things, Jesus stood himself among them and said to them, Peace to you. That is his first word to this gathering of the disciples, to his church in miniature here It's more than a simple greeting to them. It's a blessing upon them. Peace to you. Peace was uh, what characterized Jesus' ministry to them before his death. Uh, In John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus said to them, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. That was before he died. Now, After his death and resurrection, it is what characterizes his ministry as well. Peace to you. What is this peace of the risen Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples? You think about it. First of all, in a real sense, there is now peace for Jesus. Peace for him, himself. He has the right to speak this peace because he knows what this peace really is with God the Father. You remember in the Old Testament, there are many of those false Old Testament prophets. Of them it is said they speak peace, peace, when there is no peace. That is not the kind of prophet that Jesus is. He knows peace because He understands no peace. He understands uh, that brutal warfare that was due to us as God's enemies. He understands and bore that absence of peace. That uh, atomic bomb of God's wrath that fell on him uh, in the cross. He knows the black hole of peace at Calvary. No peace. 
He became our sin and bore its offense. Uh, There is a saying that goes, he who desires peace should prepare for war. And spiritually speaking, Jesus understands that reality more than we can imagine. He has borne now the fullness of the warfare uh, that was due to us because of this broken covenant so that he is now able to speak the terms of peace, restored, granted once again. He is in himself the possessor of peace with God. And so then he is also the conveyor of, of peace with God to his disciples. He is breathing the air now of peace with his Father. And it is uh, that which he breathed out to them when he speaks to them, peace to you. Uh, This is what is explained to us in the rest of the New Testament Especially in uh, the, the writings of Paul, we read earlier when we were assured of our salvation that Christ was delivered up for your trespasses and raised for your justification. That's Romans 4.25. The very next verse goes on to say, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, what? We have peace with God. Romans 8, verse 1, the resurrection is good news uh, because uh, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The resurrection is good news because it means your sins have been paid for, that it has been accepted, uh, that you are justified in Christ. The resurrection is an irreversible reality that says full and free justification is secured. Peace to you, Jesus says. That's what he came to accomplish. It's finished. I've accomplished it, he says. All the way back in Luke 2, verse 14, it was announced that this was the very purpose of his life uh, by the angels who said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace uh, with those uh, with whom he is pleased. That's the purpose of his life. And now that very purpose of his life is accomplished. It's what he offers to his disciples. And he does so only hours after rising up from the death that he bore. Think of this. That he bore because of their own sins. Because of our sins which brought it about directly And indirectly, you think of these disciples, they deserted him. They denied him. They failed miserably in their service to him. Only days ago, they did so. It would not be a shocking thing if Jesus appeared to his disciples and said to them, I am about to recruit new disciples. Uh, Not just Judas, but all of you. Uh, a new batch of disciples, uh, a new true faithful remnant I'm going to gather around myself now. But no, that's not what he says. He is the only faithful one. He knows that. He is the faithful remnant. And as such, his first word to his failures of disciples is peace. I have gained it for you. I offer it to you. He could have very easily rebuked them, but... 
Jesus is the blessed peacemaker. He is the one who perfectly fulfills that beatitude. He comes and he preaches peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. As Paul would later say in Ephesians 2.17, he preaches peace to us. How would you have responded to that offer of peace from Jesus Christ? How have you responded to his offer of peace? Such a, a peace as this, a merciful peace like this, it can be a terrifying thing when you really think about it. Think about times that people have offered you peace. I can think of occasions in my own life uh, where my wife has forgiven me for things that I have done. Uh, and it's a forgiveness that actually will keep me up at night. There's something about it uh, that is so costly and sacrificial and otherworldly. It's, it's something that is so otherworldly. I know I've experienced something supernatural that only God can give. That sort of forgiveness and peace can terrify you because it's so potent. It's so powerful. That's how Jesus approaches his disciples here in their sin and failure. Uh, scripture says that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living and forgiving and peace-offering God. We are those who, like in the parable we saw before, have deserted our father uh, like the prodigal. Uh, We run off and we squander everything. And yet Jesus welcomes us back with joy. He is like the anti-older brother we saw who, who welcomes us back joyfully, who has appeased our father so that the father now is looking out for us and runs to us and welcomes us home. Peace is offered. This is peace with God that is alien to this world. This world does not understand this kind of free offer, of sacrificial offer of peace. And you see, it's the only kind of peace that saves. It's otherworldly and it can be frightening when we really experience it. Do you know this peace, this ferocious, fierce, frightening peace with God? Well, as the disciples experience it here, apparently they were frightened. Because not only does Jesus say to them, peace to you, he goes on to say, it really is me. That's the second thing we see. He said, peace to you, now it's really me. He says so here, we see in verse 37, because they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. It's I myself. It's really me. They're experiencing things that are beyond this world, things that are frightening. Uh, It's not hard to understand why they're frightened. They're in a locked room here, and suddenly Jesus is there. 
Cleopas and his companion know that he had the ability to just disappear at a moment's notice. Now he appears. It's one thing to say and confess Jesus is risen indeed. It's another thing for the real risen presence of Jesus to suddenly appear there. This terrifying supernaturalism continues. Maybe you've seen a really uh, amazing magic trick before. Before a big crowd, you know that even magic tricks that appear to be uh, supernatural get shrieks from an audience. You see, that's the whole point here. It's not a trick. There's no smoke and mirrors here. It's not a stunt. It's really me, Jesus says. It's really supernatural. The same flesh and blood Jesus, you think about it, who walked and talked with them, who they saw pierced on the cross, is now risen with that same flesh and blood and stands before them. And as he comes before them here, the first thing that our gentle and omniscient Savior does is he looks into their hearts. He sees what's going on there. He, he says to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? He begins to rebuke them. That's the pattern. They behold him and then he rebukes them. Why are you troubled? Just like he said to Cleopas and his companion. Foolish ones and slow to believe. Why and what are they doubting here? They're doubting the supernatural reality that they see right before their eyes. And Jesus challenges that doubt. You think about it. God is a supernatural God. The God that we serve is beyond this world. He can do anything He desires. Do you really believe that? What did you expect, Jesus is saying? What do you confess? He is almighty. He is supreme. He is otherworldly. I, I think it's important for us to, to realize just how often we effectively live this way. We effectively live like we do not believe that our God is supernatural. That he has all power in his control. Why are you troubled and doubting? Don't you believe that God raises the dead? Don't you have that faith that your father Abraham had, remember? Who reckoned that God was able to raise up his son uh, from the dead. You see, God does raise the dead. That belief that God does raise the dead, that he has in fact raised our crucified Lord Jesus, it's a faith that should stabilize us. Uh, that should stabilize your life in troublous times, just like it did for Abraham when he was called uh, to do that unbelievable thing, to sacrifice his own son. He reckoned God was able to raise his son from the dead. Consider the way the resurrection stabilized the Apostle Paul in his own trials as well. He speaks of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, of the many afflictions and sufferings that they experienced. He says to them, I do not want you to be ignorant of it. We felt like we even received the sentence of death. But he says that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us, Paul says. He will 
deliver us again. On him we have set our hope uh, that he will deliver us. It's like he's saying, I'm in good hands. I serve the God who raises the dead. I'm in his hands. Terrifyingly strong hands, but good hands. The God who raises the dead is at work in my life. He's at work in your life. And so the risen Lord Jesus gently confronts our doubts in our supernatural God. Why are you doubting? But then, second of all, after he confronts our doubts, he proves the reality of his resurrection. It is really me. Uh, He proves that reality in two ways. First of all, uh, by their seeing him and touching him. See my hands and feet, he says. It is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And so what has happened now? They've, They've heard his voice. They've seen him with their own eyes. And now they touch him. That word for touch there, it's not just like reaching out and touching with an extended finger. It's a word that conveys actually grasping, holding on to, like like a hug or uh, the right hand of fellowship that they now enjoy with God through Christ. And as they did so, there was no denying it. They were holding on to the flesh and blood of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. As he said, they could feel his, his hand bones. Maybe they could feel his rib cage. They could feel the warmth of his blood in his body. We read about this testimony earlier in 1 John chapter 1. That which we have heard, have seen with our eyes, have looked upon and touched with our hands, we proclaim also to you. It was undeniable when Jesus reached out to them. But there's more. He gives a second proof to them as well. And his second proof was eating food. Of course, eating food is one of the most basic realities of human life. He asked for it and he ate it right there in, his, in their presence. So that they would behold that he was really flesh and blood. Very much contrary to one of the great early heresies in the early church of docetism. He did not merely seem to have a body. He really did. He really was risen in his flesh and blood. It was important enough that Peter would later speak of this meal in Acts 10 Verse 41, he said, God raised Christ up from the dead and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us as witnesses, and we ate and drank with him after he rose. This was among the many various proofs that he gave to them, uh, that he gave to them after he rose. Acts chapter 1, verse 3 says, To them Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs. Here it is reported to us. This record in God's word that they heard and saw and touched the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it so important? Because we have not. We have not heard his very voice. We have not yet seen him with our physical eyes. We have not yet 
touched him with our hands. We need to be those who hear it proclaimed to us, just like John said. That is the function of God's word here. It proclaims. It proclaims to us the good news of these proven realities. Isn't it amazing how God in his word, how he clearly appeals to our need for proof? It's not that he just says, believe it, it happened. He gives us proof, and there's so much of it. Many different witnesses, in many different places, on many different occasions, by many different individuals and groups of people, hundreds of them, Acts says, so that it could be corroborated with one another. But you know what? What is even more amazing, I think, than all of those proofs is that after all of those proofs, the disciples were still skeptical. I think maybe that's one of the best proofs of all. The way that it is reported to us. They were not, as is so often suggested in modern times, just so naive. In point of fact, the disciples are consistently put in a bad light. A negative light for their doubts, for their foolish, stubborn, slow-to-believe hearts. That was the greatest problem that needed to be overcome. They even stood in the same room with Jesus, and not even that incontrovertible evidence was enough. They still needed the Word of God. They needed the incarnate Word of God, Jesus Christ, to explain to them what it was they were beholding, to point them back to what he said, to what the scripture said, to what Moses and the prophets and the Psalms said, as we saw weeks ago, and as Lord willing, we'll see next week as well. We continue to see that Christ's word and spirit are the ultimate proof, the overwhelming proof that it is really him, flesh and blood, even to our eyes of faith that he is risen from the dead. He really is risen flesh and blood. It's really me. And as we close this morning, I'd like us to consider last of all this central concern of this passage, why it really needs to be Jesus. Why does it really need to be Jesus? What do we learn from the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Many people speak of the resurrection, but they do not believe that he really rose flesh and blood from the grave. Why is that essential to our faith? First of all, three things to consider. First of all, Jesus' bodily resurrection is essential to your salvation. Jesus says here, it is I myself. And as he does so, he holds out his very hands before them. Look at his hands in the eyes of faith. What do you see there? What you see is glorified hands, yet hands that are still bearing the marks of his crucifixion. That's what he points out to them. It's remarkable to consider that Jesus' hands, they're like a miniature gospel. Right there on his hands proclaiming that Jesus has died and risen, proclaiming to us his sufferings and his subsequent glories. Flesh and, hand, flesh and blood hands pierced and yet glorified. 
This is important because of the salvation that Jesus came to gain for us. One theologian is known for saying that he can only save that which he assumes, that which he takes on. And thus, it's important that Jesus be a man. It's essential that he be both God and man. But it's essential that he rise from the dead as both God and man as well. That he live forever as the God-man, mediating between God and us. It's necessary that our risen Savior be living and breathing because he still has work to do for us as our risen flesh and blood Savior. His blood is still speaking for us. His real blood is still speaking for us a better word than the blood of Abel, as Hebrews says. As we sang earlier, five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Jesus' flesh and blood hands speak to the Father. And they speak to you as well. To the Father, they speak peace. You see, that word of peace is vitally tethered to the bodily wounds that he still bears. They are beautifully glorified now, and as such, they will forever speak on our behalf of wrath that has been exhausted, of work that is finished, of salvation that is perfected. And the Father hears that word of peace, of salvation. Do you hear that word as well? Jesus' bodily resurrection speaks of your salvation. Second of all, Jesus' bodily resurrection is essential to your destiny. Your destiny, where you are headed which is absolutely secure. Jesus here has gained a glorified body. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 calls it the first fruits of his brethren, of you and me. First fruits, that's a farming metaphor. And so that means that probably none of us understand what it means. We don't think of farming very much here in suburbanite Glenside. First fruits, a farming metaphor. It's just what it sounds like. The first fruits taken at the beginning of harvest time. They were often offered up to God in gratitude. But, of course, first fruits assume more fruits. First fruits assume a final harvest. Christ is the first fruits in his resurrection from the dead. You will enjoy the final harvest. You will be the final harvest. You will gain your own new resurrection glorified body as well. It's like Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 18 that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. Though we will die, we will be raised up again at the last day and we'll receive an imperishable body. That will be the final resurrection, the final harvest. It's what we long for. Some of you long for it more than others because you're aging and you know the frailties of this earthly body. There are two types of bodies. 
1 Corinthians 15 speaks of that. There are the ones that we have now. We groan in them. They are of the earth. But because Jesus is risen from the dead, we will not groan for eternity. We will receive a spiritual heavenly body as well. Our groaning will give way to an eternal weight of glory, Scripture says. In fact, it must give way to that. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. This body must put on immortality. Why? Because Jesus has gained it for you. It is your destiny now. Nothing can separate you from that because of what Jesus has done. It's become a necessity because of his resurrection from the dead. It's your destiny. An embodied, glorified resurrection existence in your Savior's presence. You will enjoy the fullness of this. In fact, you will enjoy the fullness of what these disciples here This miniature church in this room with Jesus experienced only partially. You will one day look upon, touch, and see your risen Savior. And when you do, you will be made perfectly like unto him in his immortal resurrection body. That is your destiny because you are found in your bodily risen Lord Jesus Christ. It speaks to your salvation It speaks to your destiny, but then third of all, and last of all, Jesus' bodily resurrection is essential to your peace and joy right now. To your peace and joy. We're told about these disciples here, this very evocative phrase, that they disbelieved for joy. What does that mean? I think you know uh, what that is like. It's actually about believing, but... Like we often say, it's too good to be true. I can't believe it, and yet you do. It's beyond what you could have ever asked or imagined. It's overwhelming. It's astonishing, but it is true. Just as he said, he is risen, and we must believe that it is so. Do you believe it? Do you believe that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ died and was under the power of death for three days and then he rose in his flesh and blood and that tomb is empty? It's essential to your peace and your joy because your peace and joy is this risen Savior. This passage here is one that just throbs with supernaturalism. It is in your face. The God we serve is a supernatural God who has used that supernatural power to save us from our sins and bring us to himself. Think about it all. Your God and your Savior, your faith, your salvation, your destiny, your resurrection body, your peace and your joy. All of it is supernatural. It's beyond this world. And we need a passage like this. We need to soak it all in. We need a passage like this so that we're raised up from our earthly way of thinking, our earthly way of doubting, that we would be blessed and believe in our supernatural risen Savior. So let us rejoice. Say it again. Let us rejoice and be glad. Your Savior 
is risen. Let us begin to partake of and handle these things that are unseen, as the hymn says. You are those who will one day see and touch this precious risen Savior. And when you do, you will be made perfectly and supernaturally like unto him. Let us believe it, be blessed by it, and bless the name of our God as we close together in prayer.